Thank you for accessing the Leadership Week trainings featuring Visibilities, Tuesday Topics, and Sunday Edition on ACB Media. This podcasted digest version has pulled all of the pertinent information you'll need to have a successful leadership conference as well as successful virtual hill visits. Up first, Terry and Visibilities talks about landing those meetings. Then, as we transition to the most pertinent information from Tuesday topics, you'll hear all manners of effective communication styles. And finally, when we transition to the Sunday edition portion, you'll have an introduction of this year's imperatives, as well as some helpful talking points from subject matter experts. All three of us were beyond delighted to be able to participate in this year's training sessions for Leadership Week, and we hope that you have the most successful of virtual Hill visits you've ever had in your states. Thank you so much for listening, and if you have any questions or feedback, please don't hesitate to reach out to Sunday Edition AC at gmail.com. And your questions or comments will be forwarded to the appropriate persons. Thank you so much and enjoy. My very special guest is Debbie Grubb, who has been doing advocacy and legislation, I think, since the cradle. I want to just say that what I'm going to talk to you about is a process that has worked for me. It is not, as I said to Terry yesterday, the holy grail of making appointments. But I want you to know that it is a process that has worked pretty well for me over the years. And for, I started doing it in Maryland. And um, so, you know, it's been a long time. As Terry's right, more years than we want to confess. When I begin to plan the setting up of my appointments, the first thing I do is go to house.gov and senate.gov. And when you go out there, there is a way that you can find your own member via your zip code. But I go down and look for the entire list. I download that and have it in my note taker so that I, and in that list that comes from house.gov or senate.gov, you get your member's name, their political affiliation, the district that they represent, a phone number, and a Washington, D.C. address. Now, it's not an address like 2583 9th Street. It's just like a suite number and say, Cannon House Office Building, C-H-O-B. So you get that information. The first thing I do is I make sure that I know what districts they're from. And if you go out on your own home list, your own state list, whatever it might be, you can find a list of the congressional districts so that you know the part of your state that this member represents. And that can be very helpful. When the visits are real, it is not always possible to have someone from every district. And I explained that very well in a letter that I'm going to talk to you about in just a moment. But with these virtual calls, it is very nice to think that we can have more people talking to members and LAs that are actually in their districts. The next thing I do is I start calling the D.C. offices. And usually the process that I use is I call each Washington office. I tell them who I am, 
that I'm a member of the Florida Council of the Blind, or you'd say whatever uh, council or you know state affiliate you're a member of, and that we will be coming to the Hill this time. I will say we will be hosting virtual meetings with legislative assistants, and I give the dates, and I say. I would like it very much if you would tell me which legislative assistant I might contact and give me their contact information. I would appreciate that very much because what I'm going to tell you is, first of all, most of the time their voicemails are full. There was a time in the world when you could call an office and they go, yes, well, that that legislative assistant is Mr. Ray Campbell. And I'm going to put you right through to him right now. And Ray would answer the phone and you would make the appointment. He's sure I'd be glad to see you. That was back in the day. That does not happen anymore. So one of two things happens when you talk to the person that answers the phone. They either assign you to the appointment scheduler, which adds another little thing, a little another little step to your process. And they ask you to contact the legislative scheduler, appointment scheduler, and they will get you in touch with a legislative assistant. I get all that done. And as I'm sitting there on the phone, I'm writing down the name, the email address, whether it is the, the LA, the legislative assistant, or whether it is the appointment scheduler. So I get all of that done. And that takes a while because you call every office. Sometimes if you cannot get someone at the Washington, D.C. office, I go to, again, my state list, my state email, state website, and you can get home offices for all of your members in Congress. I like to start out with the Washington offices because they're the people you're going to be seeing They're the people you're going to be dealing with. But I have found if you call a home office and say, I've really been trying to reach out. I can't see Senator so-and-so or Representative so-and-so's. I can't get a legislative assistant. And they say, tell me what you want. And they will make sure that you get somebody to call or that will call you. So that's the first step, the second step of calling. I have found that most of the LAs live in the D.C. area. But this is just a process. You all can take it in whatever order you want. If I've got all the numbers right by my phone, I can call. If I don't get anybody, I immediately make a note to look up the home number. So on my process, I always do the DC first. But then if I don't get anybody, after I've gone through those 29 calls that I have to make, from the 202, then I get the home office and I do that. But there is no law. The the world is not going to strike you in the head with a thunderbolt if you decide to call the home offices first. Once I've made the calls and I have the information that I want in terms of contacting people, I prepare a letter and it's in the form of a memo. And I have all of the information at the top, who it's from, you know, that kind of thing. And then in this memo, I explain that we are from the Florida Council of the Blind, who we are, what we are, that our parent organization is the American Council of the Blind, ACB, who they are, what they are. And I say, we will be on the Hill or we will be having virtual meetings, Zoom meetings in this instance on such and such a date, and I would very much like to schedule an appointment. And I either say with you, if I'm writing to the legislative assistant, 
Or if I'm writing to the appointment scheduler, I say with whomever you feel you would like to delegate this meeting to. And I would say then, this year, we are bringing to you four legislative imperatives. And I put just a little blurb about each one. Now, sometimes on the calls, when you're actually talking to people, the person that you talk to will want to know what you're talking about, but sometimes they don't. But I always put that in the letter. I thank them very much for considering uh, giving us an appointment and I give you know, contact information as to how they can reach me by way of email. And I write this letter each year and it's like a template, but I change little parts of it. Like if, if I'm talking to a female LA or a male LA or another gender and they have, because what you will find when you get messages from these LAs, now they do have their proven uh, gender pronouns and nouns. And if I've misspoken on that, I apologize, but that's, I meant no offense, but that's what they have. So I try very hard to ensure that I make the letter as personal as I can while the meat of the letter is what I have posted. When I get the people that I'm supposed to meet with, whether it's the appointments person or the legislative assistant, I email them each this letter because I can tell you their voicemails are usually full. They don't return calls and especially now that they're home. And the other advantage of doing email is that wherever they are, they're going to be looking at their work email. So that's the second thing I do. Then I see who I hear back from. If I get appointments back from the appointment scheduler, many times they will say, Mrs. Grubb, I have copied Ray Campbell on this and he will be getting in touch with you. But usually what I do is I write to that person and I say, I am so happy that we are going to be meeting together and I resend the letter that I sent. I, I change a little bit at the top of it so it's personal to him or her, but I then send the letter again. If I don't hear from either the legislative assistant or the appointment scheduler in two days, I'm at it again. And I write, I know how busy you must be, but these appointments are so important to us and we would very much like to sit with you and speak about our legislative imperatives for 2022 or Zoom with you or, you know, whatever the, whatever the situation is. And I say, for your convenience, I am pasting below the letter that I sent you. And usually by that time, you're getting an email. And so the next step is when you get the email, as I said, from the appointment scheduler, you thank her and you immediately begin to contact the people that you're getting appointments with. It's a game. You can't do it too soon. You can't start this process too soon because I'll go, oh, well, I don't have to meet with her for, you know, till March. This It's only February. And they kind of forget about you. So when I say immediately, I mean, once you start the ball rolling on this process, and so you provide, you send emails back and forth. What's wonderful about the Zoom, which we were going to be doing this year, is you don't have to do your appointments in one day. And so you begin to, when they say, I could meet with you at three on March 17. And you begin to create a template with all of your appointments, the buildings and all of that. Now, back in the time when we were actually walking up there, I arranged everything by building. 
because it's quite a bit of difference between the buildings, as some of you know, and all of that kind of stuff. With this Zoom, it doesn't matter what building they're in because they're going to be probably at home anyway. But you begin a template of who it is you're seeing, their name, all of that stuff, and you put in when you will see them. And I say, especially with Zoom, when um, we were actually going, I would make each appointment last a half an hour. Now they didn't. But what I'm saying is I didn't schedule appointments too tightly because we would need to get there. The same thing is true with the Zoom. If you're having a really wonderful conversation with somebody and you're supposed to meet with somebody, you know, so make sure you leave ample time between appointments. But they usually will write to you and they usually will give you a time or two. So you you begin your template. And in a, in a large state like Florida, we've always had legislative teams, groups, whether we are doing it virtually or whether we're going. So as I get the appointment template filled out, then I begin to send to people their own appointment schedule, who they're going to be seeing. So you're and, doing this kind of as the chair for your delegation in general. Yes, I do it. But there is nothing wrong with delegating, saying, okay, you're going to be seeing four people. You make the appointments. What I'm going to say is whether you're making the appointments for four or your entire delegation, the process of getting the information, making the contact, writing a respectable looking memo, all of that stuff still works. So I just happen to do it. And, you know, everywhere I've ever been, they just want me to do it. But there's nothing wrong. But what I would say is when you delegate, share some of this process with the people because they will find it will work better. It doesn't take rocket science to do this. It can be extremely tedious. But if you really want to see people, you've got to keep at it. You've got to keep reaching out. You've got to keep sending you can't say, well, I wrote this wonderful letter and I mailed it to them, emailed it to them, and they never got back with me. Yeah, that happens. You've got to be the one to keep throwing the ball and reaching out in a polite way, but also in a way that lets them know that this is very important to you. And when you have your template letter, you can tailor make it to whomever you're talking with. This process will work whether you are making the appointments for your whole delegation or whether you are delegating them to people. It looks like to me, if you're the chair of your committee, you do want to keep a track of what your people are doing and how they're doing in their process of getting appointments. To, to break it up into, you know, into your, your subcommittee, if you will, your committee calling to make appointments. In my experience, it would also be very important to do that geographically. The closer you can get that legislator or that aide to that person. They will relate more to a person from their constituency. I think you're absolutely right, especially when we were traveling to Capitol Hill, the financial burden that is on people to help cover their expenses. So I have a little paragraph in my letter that we are a grassroots organization and that people who come to Capitol Hill, now I won't say this this time because it's virtual, but what I'm telling you is that sometimes I always say we try to make sure that there are people seeing you in your district among your constituents, but it is not always 
possible. So I say that and I will say things like, I won't say who she was, but one representative wanted to give me a hard time, her um, scheduler. She said, well, if you can't send us somebody from your district, our district, we don't want to see them. And I wrote back and I said, well, with all due respect, and I just said what I said to you about the financial burden. And I said, we do have people from all over the state and the people that we will send to you are very prepared to bring to you these legislative imperatives which certainly affect the lives of people who are blind and visually impaired in your district. And I really would hate to report back to members who live in your district that you wouldn't see us. It was amazing how quickly she, it, it all changed. So it's whatever you can do. If you're in a small state and you've got a few people, you can probably get people in the various districts. It's nice to do it when you can But if you can't, then give that explanation because it's better to have them see somebody than nobody at all. The advantage of the letter is that they're not totally blindsided uh, by your imperatives. Sometimes they'll send two legislative assistants to meet with us so that they can hear about the various stuff. I always try to make sure that I know what committees these members of Congress serve on. Because if you've got a bill or a hoped for bill, in other words, an imperative, whatever it looks like, that affects their committee, then you really want to make sure that you say, and we really want um, Senator so-and-so on such and such a committee. So I always try to give the people that are keeping these appointments that information. And the other thing that we try to do is we say we try to spend more time on imperatives that these people can do something about. But if it is something that is important, we say we realize that you do not directly have anything to do with whatever it is we're talking about. But if you could be a co-sponsor or if you've got friends on the appropriate committee, if you could just put a bug in their ear about this. And the final thing, when we go, sometimes we have other things that we want to bring to them. Like one year, we wanted to talk about accessible voting in the polling place. And so what we did was we obviously talked about all the legislative imperatives, but I added that we from the Florida Council of the Blind wanted to speak about this. And what we did was I asked our voting guru here in Florida to write a letter that we could put right in the folder with the legislative imperatives when we went to the Hill, when we gave out these folders back in the day. And I also put some bullet points about it in that memo that I was speaking with you about. Once you start getting your appointment made and you think, oh God, this is so good. Then you begin to get texts and messages. Mrs. Grubb, I am so sorry, but I have to be this me. And then you have to start rescheduling. And back in the day when we were actually in training, I had an earbud in one ear and I was writing messages back to reschedule appointments on my Braille sense and listening to the speakers who were speaking. So sometimes you think you've got your little puzzle all together and everything is wonderful. And then, you know, there are the changes. So I guess in summary, it's the calling, whether you call the home office first or the 202, the creating of the template letter. And I will tell you, if you, somebody in your group is really good at that letter, there is nothing wrong with your sharing that. If you're going to delegate people to make appointments, there's no reason why they couldn't send the same memo, but doctor it up. Mention the person by name or the member by name. We would very much like for you to 
We'd like to speak with you about our legislative imperatives so that you can bring them to the attention of member so-and-so, representative so-and-so. This process is very adaptable. What I'm going to try to do when we set up our appointments is have them over the final three days of the week, the Monday and Tuesday that we're with ACB on these programs. But if we have to, we can go over into the next week. It is not nearly as difficult to get appointments when you've got this kind of a, of a timeline. It's so important to get the appointment and it's so important to make a good impression. And it is very important that whether you are actually on Capitol Hill or you are doing it by Zoom, that you are on time. And when I have all my appointments set the day before, I write to everyone and I say, we are so looking forward to meeting you at blah, 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 or speaking to you by way of Zoom. And I resend the Zoom link because when I make my appointment confirmations, like I'll say, well, we are happy to meet with you on March 17 by way of Zoom at 3.30 p.m. And for your convenience, here is the Zoom link. You can't send stuff too many times. So when I do my little reminder thing, I last year I resent the Zoom link. And when I was doing it on Capitol Hill, I would say, you know, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes they want to know who they will be meeting with. If they ask me, I will tell them. That is the process of preparing for and making and confirming appointments. It to help streamline it just a bit. One of the things that you can absolutely that you could absolutely do a, a schedule an Outlook appointment uh, meeting and email it to them right away, and it's on their calendar. And that would also have the links in it as well. And it, I think it's more convenient for them because that's the way they live by their calendars. Do you realize that when you're Making is when you're on a Zoom call and you do not have your video turned on, what comes up on the screen that that legislative assistant is seeing? It is not a face of you. It is quite likely not your name. Your name is down in a little corner uh, as long as they keep their mouse moving or their finger on their screen of their eye device. What is sitting in front of them is just a small image. A white, it's it's like two pieces. And what it is, is it's a white silhouette. It has no facial recognition. It has no recognition of who you are. They are so used to eye contact or at least seeing the other person. It may not be necessarily with eye contact in this day and age because everyone's so used to Teams and Zoom that they might be kind of looking down because they're really doing something else on their computer at the same time. But they are at least seeing another person, not just a silhouette that is coming up for every single person that doesn't realize that they don't have a photo of themselves either in their profile, on their Zoom account or have their video on where they're actually, where they can actually see you through your camera. That's something that I think is very important for first impressions, for them to know who they are talking to, that there really is a person on the other side of that little white silhouette. It's a little bit tricky, but it's not that difficult to do. We don't have time tonight to do it, but it's something to absolutely be aware of. Anthony, did you want to add something? You know, we're a big state, so we divided into teams. You know, I strongly suggest that elect a team leader, um, you know, meet 
early on in the process. So if we're starting on Wednesday, meet early Wednesday morning, make sure everybody's Zoom is working and so on and so forth. But I strongly, strongly suggest that the team leader be on video. Have your video, you know, have someone help you check it out or you can use Ira or Be My Eyes. If you're using it from your phone, there is a mode for Zoom where you can where you can mirror what the person on the other end of the Zoom is seeing so that you can adjust your laptop or computer webcam, whatever it be. We should all have profile pictures up. You know, they definitely don't want to be in the bikini or the Speedo. You know, they want to be semi-business casual kind of professional looking. And for the person or persons who are going to be on a video camera, please don't be sitting, you know, in um, a, a wife beater or, um, you know, a big oversized t-shirt. You want to be business casual. You want to have something that that makes you look like you've dressed to meet this legislative assistant. You want to give it the respect that it deserves. Most of the LAs that we met with on Zoom last year had up a, a profile picture. They did yep. not have their video on. So what I'm going to say is, if you feel comfortable getting help and turning that video on, go for it. If it's going to stress you and make you nervous, get some assistance and put up a nice profile picture. Then you don't have to turn your video on. So yeah, last year in one of our meetings, somebody had a picture of themselves and their guide dog in front of a Christmas tree. Um, and the LA remarks, oh my God, what a beautiful picture, what a beautiful dog. That conversation we had lasted almost 45 minutes. Plan to be able to get your imperatives in, in the 10 or 15 minutes. But if you get the impression that they're really interested, you can move it along again. But one of the things that Thomas Reed said that really made an impression on me is they seem friendly. They're, maybe they're not really in favor. of They don't want to bother their boss. So they act all friendly. They want to know about you. Where did you get your dog? Or have you been blind all your life? And suddenly your time is gone. Try to have that really deep connection of being warm, friendly, charming, being people that they want to hear, that they want to listen to, that they want to, they want to take that little document that that this year we'll send by email. Once we get the little papers, the little pages that we usually put in those folders and take to the hill, we will email those to our um, legislative assistant that we'll be meeting with. Be diligent that you don't waste time, but that you give time if it's available. But you want to make sure that you get your points across. As a team, we met 10 minutes before every meeting and we went over what committees the member uh, the member serves on, et cetera, et cetera. Because you don't want to make a faux pas and have the LA say, no, they're not on, on such and such a committee. This Maybe you were thinking of the other imperative and it's like, oh, oh, yeah, you don't want to scramble and have to regroup. Uh, we found it really, really helpful to go over right before each meeting, the legislative assistance, you know, that we were talking to, what the member was for and which imperatives of last year, I think it was three, um, which of the three or, or two of the three, et cetera, that really would speak to that member. And, um, you know, and that, and that really also, when you come prepared, they know you're prepared, they're more, they're more engaged. And I just want to say one thing about the meeting itself. You need to have a note taker. Now, the note taker can talk, but you need to have somebody like, like say, the exercise for all imperative. If the LA seemed really interested, if they asked questions, what did they ask? What do they want to know? They need yep. to see that you are taking notes and you need to return those report back forms because. The meeting never happened 
without a record. But we need to do those report back forms. We need to follow up. We need to give ACB what they need to follow up. Back on what we were talking about before about the pictures. And if you decide that you want to do video, one of the things you might want to do, and especially if you've got a team leader, is come up with a safe word. I might say, I don't know, just use some kind of a word in there to give you the hint that you need to shut your video off because you're really... Uh, it's upside down or something like that. They they do ask questions. And if they ask a question that you don't know or no one on the team knows, please tell them you'll find the information. You'll follow up with an email to, to the LA themselves or you'll reach out and get the information. Don't flub. Was, uh, Debbie kind of mentioned this earlier. Make sure that the LA has somebody they can contact on the day of the appointment. It's very, very important after the meeting that you follow up and say, Thank you. When you prepare your little email with the legislative imperatives and all that stuff, you want to send them a contact sheet with all of your teams with an email, a name, a phone number. Doing the the visits by Zoom last year, we found that it's very different. Uh, when you're in a situation in person, it's easy to I talk, you talk, he talks, you know, that type of thing. But it's easy to you know, not have that smooth transition between presenters. And so you might want to think of saying something like, now, Alan, um, you wanted to explain about such and such or something that lets them know now it's your turn so that we're not both starting to answer a question that has been asked or something like that. We always have a group moderator. We already know the experts. So we have so we have somebody that moves it along that says to somebody, so and so, you I believe you wanted to say something about having somebody to keep the conversation flowing, to make sure everybody gets called on, everybody gets heard, but you don't have a bunch of people yelling out all at once because on Zoom mm-hmm. it's hard to avoid that. Just put your heart in it. It can be very frustrating at times. Don't give up and don't take it personally. Be professional, be warm and kind. So it's not just an opportunity to try to get what we want, but it's all in the game of of relationship building. It's all the same. Effective communications is is simply building a strong relationship because that relationship is key in getting the positive feedback we want and, and the trust and all those different elements that really help us move our agenda forward as a collective voice, right? Relationship building is all rooted in communication. Communication is really, in a sense, that key, that building block. But really, it's about being honest, having a dialogue, doing some research, but finding common ground, Um, sharing information um, that you think will be valuable to people and leaving out the information that may not be. The best way that I recommend to do that, especially in, you know, coming from politics, uh, the words you choose have an impact. Being aware of what the compromise and common ground you're seeking um, and making sure that you are supportive of the person that you're speaking with um, and that they feel safe and trust you in the, in the dialogue you're having. To tell our story, we tell it proudly, confidently, and to invite people along the ride to understand the journey with us. One of the things that we're trying to persuade our folks to do is to recognize that they already know how to tell their story because they've lived it. They don't have to use fancy words in order to get their point across. Plain language. It's the best way to go. Larry, what do you think of what we've said so far? And what would you like to add at this point? You know, for those folks who are newbies that they have never met their legislators, there are several different levels. There's, you know, the local city council and mayor. 
and then there's a county, and there's a state, and then there's a national. And it may not be possible for you to do all of those, but if you have a burning issue, a concern, uh, an inequity, something that you feel really passionate about, it needs to be fixed, whether it's transportation or education or employment. The first and most important thing is to this is to know who has the power to make the change that you want to see made. Building a, an effective and lasting relationship with an elected public official is like courting a woman. It takes time and patience and persistence. And you have to find ways to, number one, be visible so that they know you're around Find out what matters to them, and then you go from there. What do we have to give to public officials? We can give them support. During their campaigns, they would love to have our help as volunteers, making phone calls, uh, distributing uh, flyers, attending their forums. Visibility and helpfulness matters a lot to these folks. It's important for these public officials to keep what you're giving coming, and therefore they're more likely to push the agendas that you want because of what they're getting in return. I think one thing that we really want to stress, too, is streamlining your story to be as effective as possible. I think one of the things that our community does is overtell, oversell the story to where the actual message of the story gets lost in too much of verbiage. Be brief, be brilliant, and be gone. Too often we can dive into the weeds and make something so complex that, you know, you'll have a 15-minute meeting before a congressional staff member. Uh, and that's the excellent opportunity to practice those. If you can't manage to compress what you want to say into pretty brief and pithy interchange, you're not going to get anywhere. Um, essentially, it's friendships, right? Um, at the beginning of any friendship, you got to get to know the people. Like you said, building a relationship, if it's courting somebody or something. As we tell our own stories, there's nothing worse than that awkward first date. But as soon as you sort of get sea legs and start telling a story about yourself that resonates, there's something that resonates. But oh, oh, you like that too? Well, let me tell you about how I like that as well. And then slowly and slowly, that seed begins to set. The things that we all have in common, now, all of us that are unique when we go to Washington for our, our leadership and legislative seminar and leadership meetings, we all have something unique that, that is that shared value that we all experience vision loss to some degree, blindness or vision loss, some level or degree. But we know the person on the other end of the table probably doesn't have that experience, right? So what are the things in our life? What are the challenges we face in our own storytelling that we know are going to be like something that any good narrator, any good author, any good screenplay writer would try to convey to the audience, in this case, the person of influence, that helps them be able to settle in. And it's almost like they're settling in for a movie. And there's something that's a hook, something that resonates in them. That's, I think, a conversation that we can open up to in, in perpetuity and really talk about what are some of the shared values we have as people who are blind that are the positives before we kind of focus in on the negatives, the, you know, uh, the nonverbal communications we struggle with. But what are some of those shared values uh, that we have as people who are blind? That's I think the first thing that we bring to any meeting with folks who are sighted is a plus. And that plus is that folks who are sighted want to like what we have to say. And though this may sound bad, it isn't because they feel sorry for us, because they perceive us or they perceive themselves as wanting to do what it is that we want them to do because they can see and we can't. 
and that's a great sort of bridge in a sense of thinking of them as if they're an audience, let's say. And there's something that we have in that key value in that sense, I think, would be hope. Because exactly. in their mind, if, if I were like you, and we hear this so many times, I couldn't do what you do. How many times do we hear that, yeah. right? So we bring a sense of hope. And, and that's one of the greatest narratives of all time. What is, the, what is the Bible? It's a book of hope, a book of waiting. What is Passover? It's waiting. It's hope for another day. And some of the greatest, most historic stories have been anchored in the same values that we carry with us the other day that we project on the people because they see themselves separate as us. But as we sort of, in a sense, build that relationship, more and more we let them know, hey, we're not sympathy. We're not even really empathy sometimes. We're equals to you. Stress the commonality of so many issues that we have that are shared by people who are not necessarily visually impaired. One of the biggest successes we had here was the passage of our uh, ban on texting while driving. That is critically important to us as pedestrians, but it's also important to a lot of other people who are sighted, who are pedestrians. So you can resonate with them if you find commonality of issues. One of the things we have to persuade folks who can see is that we who are blind are much more like them than we are different from them, and that the issues we face are often the same. How do we earn a living? How do we take care of our houses? How do we operate within our community? How do we get around? We may have to find different approaches, but they're all the same issues that they have Uh to deal with that we do. The, the, the other point is to bring to their attention the reality that we are a club that any one of them can join tomorrow. at any moment. Yeah. Or, their, or their father or their grandfather or their yep. uncle or their aunt. Instead of saying we are advocating just for ourselves, for our personal self-interest, we are talking to them about their relatives. That's more meaningful. When you encourage people to talk about their particular story, their particular situation, I think we need to remember that, it's again, it's not about you as an individual. It's about the collective. I've been in places where they encourage you to talk about yourself, and I think you have to be careful about that. Well, what what is your story? Do you mind if I ask how you lost your sight? And you have to kind of bring that back, to again, to the collective, What remembering why you're there. And you're not there for your individual self. You're in there for to discuss these uh, these imperatives. And uh, of course, put your story into it. But it doesn't mean talk about your individual diagnosis. It doesn't mean to go in there. Um, and y'all know it. Some people go really sad. Right. Yeah. We don't yeah. we don't want to be that way because we don't want pity. I just want to throw that out there like to tell your story with an agenda. Like that's yeah. the point of telling the story is to make yeah. sure that you reinforce your point, you come back to it, you give an example, how it relates to you, how it relates to the community, but what they can do to help. And so have the agenda when you tell your story. Great, great point, Thomas. You know, when you're telling the story, you don't really want to turn it into a sob story because it, it muddles the message. You know, we we are people that are advocating for issues that are the same issues as everybody else. They just happen to be tweaked certain ways because we're blind or low vision. Not we can't do this or we can't do that because of all the barriers in place for this particular imperative. And I think that muddles the message a lot, too. You you don't lead with the, with the heart wrenching quote at the beginning. You lead with a lead and then put the quote yep. in below. Right? We never try to bury the lead with our own sob story. You use the story to highlight the lead itself. When you're meeting, whether it's on Zoom, 
or whether it's on Capitol Hill. Things have to be at warp speed. These legislative assistants have got a million things on their minds. People come to see them every day and their stuff is as important to them as our stuff is to us. So you've got to get their attention right away. You don't have a lot of time and you've got to get their attention from the beginning. And how you present yourself is almost as important as what you say. You come in and you thank them for meeting with you and you take command Mm. of the right. moment. You tell them which legislative imperatives we're going to talk about first. You you make sure that the meeting has a flow. You move from one to the other. But I'm hoping that you guys are going to get into specifics about Zoom. I would recommend that chapters have someone to help with the visuals of making sure folks are set up properly on their camera um, because we do want to have your camera on. I think that's a very important part because, you know, like we we always promote having these conversations in person as much as possible. Zoom is not in person, but your camera can be on because that person will be looking at you. You should give the appearance that you're looking at them. So eye contact is still extremely important. If you can give that, um, I would would say definitely take advantage of that because I believe that there's still a flow of energy that happens uh, through that camera. And Um, and movement can help as well capture attention. Like if you just don't sit like a cold duck statue for the whole five minutes you might have of them. You know, use your hands, be expressive. If you can't look them in the face with their eyes, give a nod, let your hands come into the frame and, and use them as a, as a means of expression, as a means of let your body communicate. With the mm-hmm. camera, depending on how your camera is positioned, you can lower your voice and lean in when you get to that point where you really want to make a point and you just want to bring them in because folks tend to mimic, right? So they might mimic you and lean in a little bit and start to listen a little bit closer. So when you get to that point, have some notes. So if you're a Braille reader, have your notes available. They won't even see your hands. I'm not saying have yourself a script. You want to use your words, but have an outline that you'd be able to use and refer to quickly. If you're a person with low vision, um, hey, you're in luck because if you, if you can magnify your screen, you have it right there. You don't even have to you know, look away from the screen. It's right there. And if you're a person who there- uses speech, I mean, you can have your headset in and, and, and have your notes available using your screen reader. So there's there's plenty of ways to do that. Even in in-person meetings, I always found it was really helpful to have a, a Braille device open. And even if I wasn't using the notes, I wanted to have that Braille device open and appear to yeah. be using it because I wanted folks to recognize that there's technology that equalizes. And I wanted to create curiosity as well. And be careful of the interruptions, not only from them, but from yourself, because you can go off on a tangent. Folks may, may do that. and They might encourage that. Oh, what you made reference to a recipe and now they want the recipe, right? So they start talking about that. However, if you do that, think about it because you might be able to use that to follow up with them. I'll send you that recipe. And now you're in communication with them. So you can use that to your advantage, be aware of it and just understand that some of them actually will try to throw you off your game. Find something about you that could be interesting in your toolkit as a a persuasive exactly right right? it might be that you grew up in a similar neighborhood it might yeah fine and so go on wikipedia learn about your member of congress go to linkedin and link look up the linkedin staff person on linkedin and find out where did they go to school what did they what are their what clubs or or other organizations do they follow what groups are they part of and you can find out oh you like baseball? You're a you're a Washington Nationals fan? Oh, well, I happen to love my Kansas City Royals. And find the things in your toolkit as a persuasive person that you can use if you don't have the dog or anything, you know, whatever we might not have. The more you know about the folks you're going to be meeting with, the better you're going to do. Um, and throw it to the floor. 
Um, but let's take our movie again that we thought, right? And, uh-huh. and this is an exercise. It's not legislative yet. We, we, I know we'll be working, and Anthony, I'm sure you and Debbie and others will help craft people throughout the week into more uh, nuance, and we'll have meetings specifically on each imperative we're going to talk about. Debbie, you're up first. You are talking about um, exercise equipment with Tony, but Tony, you're in L.A. whose um, representative really doesn't have any stake in the exercise game. Well, hello, Mr. Stevens. If you look at the top of our page, you will see that we have a legislative imperative regarding exercise equipment. I know that this is something that your member is not directly involved in, but I want to I want to talk to you because exercise is so important to all of us. We're a nation that's overly obese, moving, having ways to exercise, to burn calories and There are now technologies that exist that allow us to do that with exercise equipment and it's being denied to us. So what I'm asking for is we are going to have a bill, H.R. 1962. And what we would love is if you could ask your member to please be a co-sponsor of this legislation because it is so important. How would you feel if you walked into a gym and you couldn't do one single thing without help and there was nobody around to help you? So please, we will move on to the others, but if you could just ask him to be a co-sponsor, we would appreciate it so much. Well done. Thank you very much, Ms. Grubb. The one thing that I wonder is whether Debbie, perhaps in the middle, could have become a little interactive again. Uh, you know, do you exercise? Uh, are, are, are there particular kinds of exercise you're involved in? Because most of these aides go to gyms. A lot of them do anyway. Um, you know, the reason I didn't, and it's a, it's a tough call. I thought about all of that, Paul. But let's say we have two imperatives that he's really going to be interested in. I wanted to get it done and get co-sponsorship. But what you said is absolutely correct. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But I was thinking again about warp speed and using our time for the biggest advantage, which is what people have to decide to do when they enter that office. Jennifer, you can play the legislative assistant and Tony is going to be talking to you about the importance of audio description. And you don't know anything about audio description. And quite frankly, you are looking forward to the end of this meeting because you're going to lunch with a couple of the staffers and there's a birthday celebration and some margaritas. So you want to rush them as much as possible and go. Hi, Jennifer. This is Tony. So nice to meet you. Thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. I know you're busy, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about something that's really important to us. You know, I think all of us deep down inside have always had that feeling of wanting to be included, right? The idea that there's always something that, uh, you know, you feel like you're part of a group. But if I tell you that today that there are millions and millions of people in our country that feel excluded every night when they turn off their television or when they go to a movie theater and they sit next to someone during like, what's your favorite movie, Jennifer? Can I ask real quick? Um, I like uh, Showgirls. You like Showgirls. Well, what about if I were to go to that movie with you, Showgirls, and the biggest scene at the end, you felt so heartwarmed, and the person next to you, they felt like there was something lost, that there was something that they just didn't get, and it's because they didn't know what was going on in the screen. You know, it's so easy for us to find a way to make media and movies and television inclusive for everybody so that we all have that feeling that we're not the odd one out that's left out on the playground or in the classroom, but in this case, in our theaters around the country. Well, it's by passing audio description and amending what's called the Communications and Video Accessibility Act. 
in a way that can allow us to have more described content on television where people are describing what's happening on the screen so that millions of Americans who are blind can feel like they're enjoying the same excitement and thrills of that moment, like in Showgirls, that you felt that same that same feeling in your heart. Is it different from narration? It is different from narration because it's special in that what happens is during the moments when there's a pause or quiet, the action that's happening, well, we might not know what happened in that scene, but the audio description is narration that's usually heard oftentimes just by the person who's blind or maybe those around them, and it tells them what's going on. All right, that's nice. great. Let's not push that apart yet. Debbie, you're going to step back up. You're going to play the, the LA. The same thing, but Tony, be bumbling. And Debbie, push him with questions and be a little bit bumbling so that we can look at effective and non-effective. Um, yeah. Hi, uh, my name's Tony. It's, it's so nice to meet you. I'm a huge, we love what your, your boss does for our district. And I'm here to talk about something that's really really important to us because, you know, we're all blind and it's really hard for us uh, to hear what's, what's, or not to hear, but, you know, to, to see what's going on in the movie. And we would love it if, you know, the member of Congress can, can help us out, you know, cause it's, um, you know, it's not fair. None of this well, is now, fair. What, what exactly, what exactly, sir, Tony, do you want the member to do? Uh, what is your ask? What are you asking this office to do? It's just not fair. Like the fact that I that you get to go to a movie and see it, and I go and I pay the exact same amount of money. I, I don't know. It's just it's all right. It's, well, explain to not- me since you can't see because you're blind, and the movie screen is visual. How is it fair then? How can you see something that is visual? What do you want us to do about that? Is there an answer to that? Yeah, we need. Um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, uh, it would be great if we can make it fair, where it's more equal. And um, but you know, Tony, there's audio listen, description. I've got a meeting. I've got a meeting in ten minutes. I need to know specifically how do we make this fair? How do we make a visual screen seeable for a person who is blind? That's not our fault. It's not the movie maker's fault. So what is it? How can this be done? Explain this to me. So AD is this great thing. It's it's really cool. You should check it out on your television. And, you know, it's it's really fun. Like, I like to watch wrestling, uh, but I can't see the wrestling. And I, I you know, it's, it's, it's really cool that uh, the AD just tells me what's going on. All right. And so what is, what is like, AV and what is AD, Tony? And how does it uh, how does it work? How does I, it tell you what's I going think on? It's, I think it stands for audio description, and the huh? way it works is, um, you know, it's like there's a separate audio thing. It basically will tell me what you're seeing on on the screen. Um, Was that like the channel yeah, that speaks Spanish to people when they when they want to watch something and they don't understand English? Is that is it the same kind of thing as that? Uh, it's it's yeah it's it's that yeah the um, the sappy the sap thing the sap uh-huh, uh-huh. uh yeah I, I think it's called sap and um and yeah it's uh well, how does this work? It. i think we it's should broken. put them out of their misery yeah, <laughs> yeah. thank you yeah i'm wondering what larry would say about the difference between the jennifer tony interaction and the debbie tony interaction oftentimes we don't think it through clearly enough realizing that the terminology is maybe familiar to us, maybe not even very familiar to us, but we've got to put it in simple vocabulary that the legislator or the uh, office staff is going to be able to understand. 
you know, you've got to introduce the terminology real early on. And, and I didn't notice that Tony did that even in his first presentation. You got to bring that term up so it becomes a familiar term. And you got to repeat it often throughout the conversation so that it then becomes familiar to the person who you're talking with. So they don't stumble over it. We have teams that go into meetings with Congress people, and generally the person who is the most experienced and, and who is perceived as, as the best communicator with Congress is the person who takes the lead. And what would have happened with a team um, who had gone into that meeting is <laughs> Tony would not have been allowed to go on nearly that long. No. Well, no, I mean, and you, the, the rapport of, of uh, having two, I mean, there's a reason why certain religious organizations are so wonderful at evangelizing. If it's Orthodox mm-hmm. Jewish community, if it's the Mormons, they travel in twos. And that's, yes. that's intentional. That is a, a uh-huh. strong strategy in evangelization. And that's basically what we're doing. We're trying to bring the good news to people. Having two go into a room is, is exponentially better than just one. The perfect thing about those two role plays was the clear and and utter distinction between having hooked the legislative assistant from from the beginning and that no matter what you said after the first time she asked you a question and you were not able to target and answer to her, you were never getting that meeting back. And one thing that the team should do is to practice role playing so that that kind of thing that put Tony in an embarrassing situation of of stumbling over uh, won't happen. I don't and, know that uh, you can say it won't happen because it doesn't matter how much you <laughs> practice. A person's going to get nervous on the spot and and folks folks are going to end up performing badly the first couple of times they do stuff almost always. And and that's not that's not a criticism of anybody. It's just real. And and practice helps. It doesn't prevent this stuff from happening. And I think the important thing is to find positive ways of moving the meeting along and of encouraging the guy to jump on the horse the next time. Everybody should remember that what you're leaving with the staffer is a document that describes each of these imperatives pretty well. What you're trying to do is to speak in ways that are going to encourage him to get into the the imperatives. And, and I think one of the things we should always say is you have documentation of our three imperatives uh, in, in front of you that we hope you'll share with, with others in the office. Sometimes you will get an L.A., that will sit stone cold because some of them will sit there like a lump. They'll say hello when you go in. As people, most of us who are totally blind, we don't know what they're doing if they're not making noise. If as a blind person, if you're not sure what their body language is or what they're doing, try to ask a little question that won't take a long answer, but will make them say, oh, I better be listening to this. So yeah. And if you don't know what those questions are, it can be like small things like, can you relate to that? There are going to be times when it's clear after a minute or, or a minute and a half when you've gotten onto your second objective that the person is just not interested. Don't waste a lot of time. It's perfectly okay <clears throat> to ask for a referral. If your Congress person is not especially excited about the issue, say, well, uh, you know, who else do you think uh, I could talk with? Who might be interested in this issue? And oftentimes you get tipped to another 
representative or or another senator even and say, well, you know, so-and-so is on the communications committee. You might want to talk with them. Oh, and, and what is their legislative aide's name? So-and-so. Okay. And do you have their direct phone number? Sure. It's such and such. So you come away with information on a future contact. Jennifer, what, what do you think are some of the non-verbal communication components that we need to be aware of? Um, there was some pretty horrendous backgrounds of our AD gala that I would have never um, approved, um, but we didn't look into that. We didn't plan for that. So I think being aware of what's happening happening around you, happening behind you can be very distracting. So although some movement's good, do it intentionally. Biggest thing that I've noticed in our community is backgrounds is there's things that are in the background that a sighted person may not have. Lots of people have- Talk a little bit about what that means, Jennifer, and what some of the bad things you saw were. Piles of target boxes directly behind you, if you're talking economic, you know, that kind of is distracting, but it almost seems like a brand representation. Being aware of what is behind you in terms of if you're against a wall, is there a big outlet with plugs hanging all out of it? Those things are distracting. Also, if you have uh, people in the background, so making sure that you're in a place that, for especially for this year, because we're virtual, you have to be aware of your surrounding and what's going to be projected. I don't feel strongly about if you need to be on camera or not personally. I, I don't think that's required in this day and age of, in the Zoom um, right. pandemic world. It's that background noise is the same if you have phones going off and things like that. So just prepare. Don't monopolize. Make right. sure there's opportunity for dialogue. That's, mm. you, know, you don't want a 15 minute rush through. Um, you want three minutes and then a question and then a, you know, yes. a way a way to bring them in, and and so just you know, again, I think telling your story, but again with purpose, with motive, and and that dialogue of not mo- monopolizing. I think just have a conversation that has to be part of it. Yes, you have an agenda, but it's okay at the very end. I also wanted to add this to ask them what you what they think the next step should be. What well, what would be the next step you would recommend to me? Oftentimes you'll be with an LA and a couple of other people. So if someone else asks a question, move your head in the direction of the voice. And if there's something that they're saying that resonates with you, nod your head a little bit. You want that leaning, you want to follow the voices. If someone else in your team is speaking, you want to move your head towards that direction as though you're trying to make eye contact. You want to nod or if they ask you a question that's off the wall, you can kind of shake your head a little bit and then make your statement. Um, that's not relevant or that's not something that really is pertinent within this piece of information. And then give them the so reason why. What you're saying certainly applies to in-person meetings and I get that. But for the most part, Zoom is not in stereo. It's in mono. And and I don't know how a, a, a blind person is supposed to differentiate among people who are at a meeting and turn towards the person who is speaking. Anthony is right on. But Anthony has had vision in his life. I would rather see a blind person do something they feel comfortable with than if they don't understand about tapping their fingers on their chin or something and it just looks stupid. The content is far more important than whether your camera's on or not. If you're not sure what your background is, if you're worried if the top of your head's all it's gonna show or whatever, the important thing is that you speak and that you're involved because most of the LAs that we talked with did not have their cameras on. 
just speak from your heart and don't turn the camera on. If something they're asking you or or they're asking you or expound upon is completely off base, it is okay to let them know. It is okay to tell them that isn't really what we're addressing here. And then re-go back to the main, whatever the lead, whatever the lead is, redirect them to the lead. And then as quickly as you can, get back to the point that you were at. You know, I'd like to focus on something else, kind of just to say not relevant, it's a bit negative. So Let's right. focus on what we're here to talk. If I could bring it back to what we're, we were speaking about earlier, you know, just just try and make sure that it doesn't offend. Please do not bullet. If you right. don't know, it is a thousand times more productive to say, I don't know, but I have your contact information and I will get back to you by, you know, tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon. I will find this information out and get back to you. It is so much more productive then she give them bull information that is yeah. never going to go anywhere. Mr. Stevens, you've been quiet. Nonverbal communication issues for you? There might be a window open behind us, and you don't want to be the talking shadow where all the light is behind you and these webcams aren't the best. So you're blinding out basically the person trying to look at you where you're just this dark shadow and there's all this light behind you. So make sure if there's a way to you know, turn toward a window if it's daylight, if there's a lamp that you can turn on to put what we call key light, like light that shines in the front of you. And that can make a big difference. If you think of your shoulders, right, and the camera's probably picking up shoulders down to like mid chest, you want to kind of work your hands and you want to emphasize, right? So the hand technique is just a way to know, okay, if I have that habit where I tend to be more of a listener, so I might turn my ear, at least I know naturally I get used to public speaking with my hands to gesture because that'll draw the focus for that moment. It, it at least gives an anchor to emphasize. And that's the key is that the, the hand motion isn't just willy nilly. It's when you want to emphasize a point and that nonverbal can kind of jar their brain if they're being distracted going, does, it, does he realize that his sunglasses are all scratched up? And, you know, they, they might hone in on something that's really weird, you know? I, I use a Braille display. And one of the things that a couple of people told me after I had used a Braille display in a meeting was that using the Braille display was really effective because people got an opportunity to actually see me doing something that I could do well. But unfortunately, it was detracted from because my nails were dirty. And it was very easy for, for folks to see that. It always helps, too, if you do have somebody just before, and if it's like, you know, one of our staff at the, at the lunch room, just go, hey, how do I look? Is my tie straight? Is my hair look okay? Everybody, even all the sighted people, someone has said, hey, uh, there's something in your nose right there. You might just want to check that out. You know, don't be afraid to ask that question. How is communication different in a virtual meeting than it is in, a, in an in-person one. Last yeah. year, and I think it was because the LAs were home, COVID, but we had more interaction with our LAs. They in, and they in general asked more questions. They seemed more engaged. Yeah, they were home. A lot of the lobby firms have been, were slowed down, not as engaging either. So they're their own workload wasn't nearly as stressful as when your Got boss it. is literally yep. constantly coming yep. in. So I think everybody was just so much more relaxed. You're not uh, wearing a tight suit. The rule of thumb for face-to-face meetings was get in and out in 10 to 15 minutes at most. Is the, is the rule of thumb with virtual to let that extend a little bit if it seems to be profitable? 
We did. When it seemed profitable to us, we said, why look a gift horse in the mouth? Now, we wouldn't have let it go on forever. But when they seemed interested and they were asking questions and they were saying, I never thought of that before. And we didn't cut them off. How did they look on screen, Jen? Like, what are we missing out on that uh, that visually to compare? Because, I mean, we talk about how they come across as relaxed and they're not as busy. But how are they looking on screen? Overall, um, definitely dressed down, Um, you know, dress shirts or sweaters versus suits. I haven't seen a jacket on Zoom in a couple of years, to be perfectly honest. I think everyone pretended to do that. Then we all went through the jogging pant Nirvana t-shirt stage. Um, but yeah, today uh, we had two individuals on. One was on camera, the other did not, but she had a headshot. Um, the person that was on camera had a background that was relevant to their corporation branding, but it, it was not their real background. So. I would say yeah. 95% blur their background because there's, you know, family, children, dogs in the background. That makes sense. People are keeping their privacy. And I would expect that if they are on camera, that would be done for the most part. Find somebody to help you load a good image of yourself. Find somebody to help you get that uploaded into Zoom if it's a challenge. We should not just focus exclusively on the national perspectives and imperatives, but also ensure and encourage people to be involved on their state level and at their local levels. Get out and vote. Make your voice heard. Give them hell out there on the hill with these virtual calls. Make them really stop and think. And all of us will be grateful to each and every one of you who took the time and made the effort to do that. All The whole goal is use your voice to make a change. Awesome. So let's get right to it. We're going to give a brief overview of the four imperatives, and then we'll unpack them one by one from that point forward. Swatha, do you want to share about the Exercise and Fitness for All Act? Yes. Exercise and Fitness for All Act is a um, bill introduced by Senator Duckworth and Representative Young and Saulnier. In the House and Senate, it would make um, gyms and fitness facilities require them to have to have um, a certain number of accessible um, fitness equipment and a staff member or staff members of the gym that would be trained in using that equipment and help train to um, assist a blind or visually impaired um, gym member or a, um, a patron. Uh, but moving on to our second imperative, a, a longstanding issue, especially for our members in ACB Diabetics in Action, is how can we get uh, accessible, durable medical equipment and home diagnostics equipment? There's a bill for that, uh, and that is the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act, and that is our second imperative. So, and this is a bill that would require Class 2 and Class 3 medical equipment with digital displays to provide non-visual access for people who are blind and visually impaired. So that bill is only in the House of Representatives right now. It is, however, now a bipartisan bill uh, with more than at least 18 co-sponsors. It could have gone up since Friday, Um, but it it is a bipartisan bill originally introduced by Representative Schakowsky from Illinois. So Swatha, what's what's imperative number three? Yes, yeah, so this one is the um, Website Applications Accessibility Act. It would direct Congress to urge the Department of Justice to establish clear guidelines for accessible websites, accessible mobile applications, and internet-connected services like kiosks and um, others of that nature. So it would fill gaps where the ADA does not 
cover? Uh, I guess there's a an open question of whether the ADA applies to websites or not, depending on the, the court jurisdiction that you're in. And the the Department of Justice has not used what we think is their standing authority to promulgate uh, regulations in this space. And I see that Chris Bell has joined us, so he'll be able to uh, help us with providing background on this issue as well. And then our final imperative for the year, we actually for this year, and that is an update to the Communications and Video Accessibility Act. Uh, so we are urging Congress to introduce a Communications Video Accessibility Amendments Act because we shouldn't have to flip around to try to find where Yellowstone is audio described and where it is not. Every program should be audio described. Every program should have closed captioning. All video user interfaces should be made accessible so that folks who are blind, low vision can access the content uh, on the platforms of their choice and just know that it will have audio description. Also, we need to I guess, complete the rulemaking using existing authority at the FCC for video communications platforms for all people who are disabled. Good stuff going there. We are uh, working with our partners in the you know, the, the deaf, hard of hearing, and deafblind communities um, to draft legislation in this space. And once that bill is ready, we urge Congress to uh, not only sponsor but co-sponsor the legislation and move it forward in both the House and the Senate. So, Clark, Swampa, tell me about the community calls that you have planned um, so folks can get prepared to to join those as well for a deeper dive into the imperatives. Yeah, so we're working with uh, Cindy and Colby. Um, I'd say stay tuned for the specific dates and times. We'll also put out the individual backgrounders for each of these separate uh, pieces of legislation or policy items um, so that folks can have them, read them, digest them, and be prepared to ask questions and dive in deeper on these issues during those community events. What I thought we would do today is unpack the imperatives in a talking point manner and then do one or two quick role plays on you know how to effectively get the points across for the imperatives. So we're going to start with the first imperative, exercise for all. And we invited Connie Sims and Leslie Spoon to help us out with it. So first and foremost, you know, what are the opening talking points that we should be using to grab attention, to push this imperative into their minds? But I think we start with the, the need, right? Why is this so important? It's important because the rates of chronic diseases and comorbid conditions are drastically higher for people who are blind and low vision in our community than they are for the broader population. The diabetes being the leading cause of blindness for working age adults, depending on the office you're speaking with. Some offices may find it you know, interesting or compelling that diabetes being a condition that disproportionately impacts people of color. Um, so there's a, a strong equity concern as well as the rates of disability and rates of chronic diseases affect all people, all socioeconomic backgrounds, and some folks more than others. Also, no one argues that the physical structure, the building itself of a gym or fitness facility 
must be accessible. But once we are there, what's the point of getting in the door if you can't use any of the equipment? I'd say that's a great place to start. Talk about the need and also in just plain language, in simple terms, why this matters. Is it is it in our best interest to mention the Get Up and Get Moving campaign and Diabetics in Action when we are presenting these imperatives? With the audience of members of Congress, I would say it's not especially necessary to go into the details of the Get Up and Get Moving campaign, but I think it is uh, interesting and compelling to mention that you know, our organization has such a focus in this area that we have a Get Up and Get Moving campaign focused on the health and wellness of our members, and that this bill and public policy is one aspect of how we're trying to give our members and the broader community the tools and the resources they need to take back their health. So, Connie Leslie, welcome, welcome, welcome. What are some of the talking points that you are going to be armed with for this on the uh, virtual visits? Getting up and get moving is a huge thing because if if we're not active and if we're not um, healthy, especially you know when you exercise, you know you have a lot of different conditions. Basically, your muscles are your framework of your body. So. When you work out, you have to get your muscles and you have to get your bones and ligaments, everything strengthened. And Leslie's going to affirm to that. Your muscles are your framework of your body. So if your muscles aren't working properly, then the rest of your body is not going to. It's going to affect the rest of your system. So it could affect your heart, your vascular, your heart, your lungs, pulmonary. So that's why exercise is so important to get up and get moving. And it has to be just even a little bit of um, movement. Increasing the heart rate. My ask is a little bit different because of my background being an instructor and a personal trainer. I have been in the settings and Connie has also, but um, each gym I've walked into from teaching and training, nothing has ever been accessible to to the blind and visually impaired world, like Clark was saying. So, so the ask, you know, when you when you're telling your story, I would I would really emphasize on their heartstrings and say. Just put a blindfold around yourself and walk into a gym and try to get on a treadmill or an elliptical or a bike or take a class. Um, For many years before I got certified, I walked in and people were like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do with you? So the thing to really emphasize is we are able-bodied people. We want to work out just like anybody else. All of these heart disease, lung, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, is very common in the in today's world. Everybody has all these things, not just the blind and visually impaired community, but all of us. We have the right to walk into a gym just like a sighted person and work out and not be like, oh my God, you're not allowed to be there. Or go to an exercise class, go to a Zumba class, take an aqua class. So if you can pull on the heartstrings of the LAs and the um, Congresswomen and men and just tell them, how would you like it? Because they work out too. I, I, When I was talking about this last year, many of the LAs were saying, I go to a gym every day before I come to work. And I said, well, mm-hmm. hold yourself one day, walk into that facility, see how it is for you. And they said, oh my gosh, one of them was going to take me up on in a challenge. And if I get to speak to him again this year, I'm going to ask him, how did your challenge go? Did you challenge yourself? Did you blindfold yourself? Because Dan and I go to Key West a lot and we walk into that. The first time we walked into that gym, they were like, oh, my God, two of you, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And after after they got to know us, it was like now when we go down and we go to the gym, they're just like, oh, yeah, 
the treadmills are over there. There's the elliptical, you know, all they have to do. Well, I mean, now they have to start us, you know, with the, the treadmill and the ellipticals. So hopefully in the future, they won't have to do that. It'll be accessible and we can just get on and start having our run and our walk and chatting away. Part of the bill is doing instruction like Leslie does. I used to go to an aerobics class and not being able to always see the instructor and they would say, let's do, you know, this type of move or let's do this move, you know, and if you cannot see that, that's a huge thing. So you need to have an instructor that's going to be able to tell you or demonstrate and work with you what those moves are going to be and describe them. You know, if you want to be going into a group setting and exercising, which doing a buddy system, doing Mm -hmm. a group setting is so more motivating than being one-on-one. They'll just say, go to the right. And I taught my Friday class with a new person in my class. And this individual was new to my class on Friday. And and I said, do you understand what I'm saying? He says, absolutely not. So I broke it down for him. And and it was a, you know, an easy move, but you know, he's never done it, this individual. So I I had to break it down. Now, if you just go to a gym, they're just going to say, do this. It would be awesome to have instructors, you know, break the moves down. And that's what we're asking for in this bill. It's not, it's not hard. It's, it's, it's very easy and doable. It just takes a little bit of community. What about all the places that uh, the gyms are unstaffed? Uh, what about the folks who have or want to use exercise and fitness equipment at home um, and who may not have uh, individuals around who can help them uh, get things started, select the workout they want, or even if you want to know what you are doing mid-workout, you know, having that audible feedback from equipment or being able to navigate that user interface or a tactile display on your own. That's really what we're asking for here. We're asking for the same level of uh, independence as everyone else. And to Connie's point about classes and trainings, think about what a barrier that is for so many of us uh, to just walk into that room, a place that is not inviting to us the need and the desire to be able to work out in that class setting just like everyone else and not only for people who are blind and low vision but the myriad chronic diseases that are out there certainly impacting us certainly impacting people with disabilities disproportionately as we've been isolated in our homes with less options for transportation The need is only going to grow as our population ages, as the rates of diabetes are increasing, the rates of obesity are increasing. So this is a a great need. How could they possibly go back and and fit all of these machines to, to talk to you folks? The technology exists. And if I can have this technology in my pocket, in the palm of my hand, or if I'm wearing a smartwatch included in my watch, that's a great time to do uh, an assistive technology or an accessibility demo, because chances are they they are wearing the same watch. They may have the yep. same phone, and they've never uh, investigated the accessibility settings. Uh, not only does the technology exist in Uh, most forms of modern communications, but there have been international standards in place since 2013 for audible output from exercise equipment, for tactile user interfaces, for fitness and exercise equipment. And then one more, we know it can be done because it's already been done. ACB worked with Peloton to add the Google Talkback screen reader to the Peloton Bike and Bike Plus in 2020. 
So it's been done more than a year and a half ago. The proof of concept is out there in the market today, and every company should be implementing this technology, these accessibility solutions to make their products more usable for everyone, but especially for people who are blind and low vision. When I do a lot of advocating, we always pull out the watches or the phone. I have the watch and he has the phones. And that's how he his main communication is. So we've always, that's one of the things that we always show people how important technology is. If you have any, especially mainstream technology that has accessibility features built in, demonstrate it. Show them. They, they are always willing to learn. I am going to ask Leslie and Connie, which of you wants to play the part of an LA and which of you wants to run through a quick how you're going to introduce this bill? Hello, Ms. Sims. How are you today? I'm, I'm Leslie Spin from the Florida Council of the Blind and the American Council of the Blind. Good afternoon. How are you, Ms. Leslie? I'm glad to meet you. How can I help you? Thank you for taking the time to listen to our imperatives today from the American Council of the Blind and the Florida Council of the Blind. We are a grassroots organization with 60 state affiliates throughout the throughout the country. We have a couple imperatives today. One is near and dear to my heart, which is the Exercise for All Act, which was introduced in the last Congress in the Senate and the House. So we're looking to reintroduce this bill. Um, it's to help people that are, are disabled in all sorts of fashions, blind, low vision, visually impaired with some low vision, or being in wheelchairs or any other kind of disabilities, having the right to work out at any facility or your home or a hotel. It doesn't take much to do it. it you could put a, a little thing in, your, um, in the machines that would talk to us to make it accessible to a gym and either work out. My, my fitness profession, I'm a personal instructor and a personal trainer. So this is my passion. I love it. I've been doing this for at least 25 years and it's just been a really up battle hill because you want everything to be accessible, just like the sighted world to go into a, a fitness center and be able to get on a treadmill and access it by yourself without having a staff person to come over and, and start the machine. So we're just looking for this bill to come be re- reintroduced. You know, maybe you can take it back to your congresswoman and see if she would um, co-sign this bill. Thanks, Leslie. I, I, would, I would be interested in, in looking at it and I would you know, be willing to take it back to my congresswoman. And um, more information you can give me if it was in, you know, email or paper form so we can actually look and review it. That is more helpful for us. But yeah, we will consider it. Definitely. Thank you. We will definitely send you some um, background information on that. Clark Rappel, our government affairs person from the American Council of the Blind, he can send that to you. And if you have any questions, you can reach out to him or Debbie Grubb from the Florida Council of the Blind or myself. All right. I will do that. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Clark Swatha, is there anything that you would like to add to what they just did? Uh, I guess one question that folks may receive, and I'll ask it to Leslie. Uh, Leslie, is it safe for someone who's blind to use a treadmill or to use exercise equipment? Yes, it is, Mr. Rockfall. Thank you for asking that question. We can get on a treadmill or an elliptical or a bike just like anybody else. You can hold on to the handles. There, There are some safety belts that can go around your back and you won't fall off the treadmill. You can walk, you can run. So yes, it's, it's just ex- as safe as a sighted person getting on these, this equipment. And I'd say it would be even more safe if we were able to control the equipment ourselves as well. Correct. Yeah. Clark Swampa, who is going to introduce imperative number two? 
Would you like to take this one, Swatha? So this is the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act, or the, um, we call it the NDAA. So it's HR 4053, introduced by Dr. Shikowski from Illinois. Yeah, and this bill essentially um, make Class 2 of the medical devices, um, FDA Class 2 of the medical devices accessible for blind and visually impaired users. The majority of medical equipment utilize interfaces that are not accessible for people who people who are blind or VI. So we require them to set standards for tactile indicators and audio output for these devices and for these interfaces. So uh, as Swatha said, there is a bill introduced in the House, HR uh, 4853, um, and it is now a piece of bipartisan legislation. However, there is not a bill in the Senate. So we definitely want to encourage our senators to either sponsor a Senate bill or to support a Senate bill once introduced. Previously, we've had multiple resolutions um, and legislative imperatives for accessible, durable medical equipment, or DME, predominantly to assist our folks in ACB diabetics in action. So continuous glucose monitors, insulin pumps. But this is this issue is broader than durable medical equipment, right? There, doctors now are using at-home diagnostic equipment, uh, remote monitoring tools, and all of those devices are, in, in many cases, those devices have digital displays. Um, so as mm-hmm. Swap stated, we want the Food and Drug Administration to consider accessibility of these class two and three medical devices with digital displays when approving and certifying these devices for use. That would cover our continuous glucose monitors. That would cover insulin pumps, home heart monitors, you know, that your doctor might give you for an arrhythmia or tachycardia. Sleep monitors as well. Yep, sleep monitors, uh, you know, at-home chemotherapy units, uh, CPAPs, various equipment like that. This would not cover at-home COVID tests. So those would likely be considered class one um, medical devices. What do you lead with, Clark? But I lead with the stories uh, that our members have shared about not being able to accurately measure their own blood sugar or the fact that there is no accessible insulin pump, you know, the the most effective and efficient way to control one's insulin level and blood sugar levels. There's no accessible insulin pump on the market today. President Dan Spoon has shared a a great story of his doctor um, having him wear a heart monitor for, uh, you know, upwards of three weeks. But anytime he needed to change the part of the heart monitor that he wore on his body, he needed sighted assistance to make sure that the device was paired and synced with the smartphone that the doctor provided him to connect it to. Being able to share stories to make it real, make it relevant to them. Um, is is a great way to help drive this story home, especially, again, uh, living in the time of the pandemic where folks are socially distant or socially isolated, where transportation barriers exist, not only in urban environments, but suburban and rural environments where these tools could be even more useful 
uh, for folks to again, take back their health and independently and privately manage their health conditions. Let's move on to imperative number three. And I think this is the one where general knowledge, um, our community comes at with the most general knowledge. Wouldn't you say, Clark? Oh, I think we all certainly mm. live this on a daily basis. <laughs> mm-hmm. So lead us through what the actual imperative is asking for, and then we'll do some talking points. I will be clear with everyone. The imperative right now is in, it is a live issue that will likely evolve between now and our leadership conference. ACB has been working with the National Federation of the Blind, as well as American Foundation for the Blind, National Disability Rights Network, and uh, the Office of Senator Duckworth to draft legislation that would clearly state that the Department of Justice and Equal Employment Commission need to promulgate enforceable standards for the accessibility of websites, applications, online services. That process has been underway for more than a year now, um, and that bill has an uncertain future on if or when it will be introduced. Another aspect of this is many of us believe that the Department of Justice already has the authority to promulgate uh, regulations for the accessibility of websites and the internet. And in fact, the Department of Justice began uh, a rulemaking with an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking. Chris Bell, was that 2010 or 2011? I think it was 2010. And then that rulemaking was not completed, and it was withdrawn by uh, the Trump administration in uh, 2017. We've all seen the the news stories of the court cases where, depending on uh, where you live in the United States and where you have Mm -hmm. a court case filed, the outcome could be very different. The courts have stated that there is some uncertainty whether the ADA and Title III of the ADA applies to the internet. Um, One of the reasons we were working so diligently on a standalone piece of legislation was to make it clear that the internet and online environment must be accessible. Because even if the Department of Justice promulgates regulations yesterday, the courts could still say, no, no, DOJ doesn't have the authority to do that. This isn't covered. And a defendant could come along and say if they didn't like the ruling uh, very well, we still don't think that we're covered and that these regulations don't have standing. So we're going to appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, So we could be one court challenge away from the Supreme Court being able to decide whether or not the ADA applies to websites and the Internet. So I got a um, question from a listener through the Sunday edition email. It is sundayeditionac at gmail.com. This person would like to know, seeing that the medical equipment and medical offices are now largely through portals, is that a way to argue the imperative using medical standards and online medical visits? Well, I think it's going to depend a lot on how the language in the legislation is written. If it's written broadly to include websites and platforms, then it seems to me that um, uh, the portal for a medical office uh, would be clearly included. Depending, again, how the law is written, uh, you have a separate provision in the Affordable Care Act, which is called, well, it's the Healthcare Non-Discrimination 
provision. And it provides, among other things, that uh, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which applies to recipients of federal financial assistance, those uh, standards under 504 have to apply to entities uh, and services covered under the Affordable Care Act. So that would be another basis, albeit one that would have to be fleshed out. There are more recent studies showing the barriers of accessibility that people with disabilities, whether people are blind, low vision, deaf or deafblind, face when accessing telehealth. A recent 2022 study found that around 65% of people who are deaf face communication barriers when accessing telehealth services, uh, similar to telehealth in the um, the education and distance learning environment when accessing classroom materials, platforms, uh, those video interfaces, uh, people who are blind and low vision, uh, roughly 20-25% have faced barriers to access as well. It's important that the legislation makes clear that not only must the website and platform be accessible, but the content that is mm-hmm. posted or displayed on that website or portal has to be accessible. And there and there are st- other statistics out there saying that of the 100,000 websites tested, 95 or 99% had at least one accessibility barrier. But uh, to Chris's point, I'll argue not all accessibility barriers are created equal, right? Uh, one could be a heading that's not tagged or mislabeled, and the other one could be an inaccessible uh, checkbox to comp- uh, to complete a CAPTCHA or a submission button or your test results in an inacce- inaccessible PDF. Um, so that's that's really what we need to get at here is the actual functioning of the websites, of the information, so that folks can access it and use it and have it be accessible and usable to them. What are some generic talking points that we can use for this since it is a living, it is a living imperative and it, it may shift between now and and Leadership Week itself. What are some generic talking points we should? Since most of us will probably be be having meetings with legislative assistants over Zoom or uh, over uh, some televideo device, the answer is that uh, the, the very fact that we're doing this is an example of how the internet is critically important and ubiquitous for information. And this is demonstrated not only by COVID, but by the things that we've had to do with COVID. For example, to sign up for a vaccination, you uh, almost always had to go online and fill out a form and hit a submit button. All kinds of uh, medical applications, as Clark has already talked about, done that way. Also, just financially, as you know, think of all the business that blind people and visually impaired people could do with websites if they were accessible. You know, more and more businesses conducted that way. It's hundreds of billions of dollars. And when they're not accessible, uh, businesses are losing our money. And so um, this is a, an important uh, aspect for health, for emergency, and for basic commerce. Clark, why don't you be our legislative assistant and Chris introduce this imperative to to Clark? Sure. Well, hi, Clark. I really appreciate your uh, giving us the time. My name is Chris Bell, and I'm with the American Council of the Blind and the North Carolina Council of the Blind. We have four legislative imperatives, and the one that I want to talk to you about, uh, and which is uh, uh, makes a lot of sense since we're talking on Zoom, is uh, the need for legislation 
that would require all websites and platforms and also mobile applications to be accessible for people of all disabilities, including particularly people who are blind and visually impaired. And what this legislation should do is to make clear that this is a right and that the government, the Department of Justice and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission should issue regulations that define what accessibility means in a functional way. When I say functional, I mean uh, so that uh, a person uh, can actually read what's on the website, read the headings, read the controls, and be able to use the buttons and make submissions uh, so that the the website, the internet, is fully accessible uh, to all of us. And that's going to include, by the way, all this talk about the metaverse, which is the hot topic in in high tech Mm -hmm. now. And it also will include uh, mobile applications. So, for example, if you want to call an Uber uh, and you have the uh, Uber mobile app, such a law would require that that app also be accessible uh, to all of us. And that's not only to provide us with necessary transportation, like to the doctor, et cetera, but it also is good for Uber and their drivers. Uh, so, Chris, let me stop you right there. And thank you so much for sharing that with me here today. Uh, so we're sitting here talking on, on Zoom. Is this working well for you? Yes, although there's some aspects of Zoom I don't know about, which I, but I'm sure they're accessible. But yeah, it's working fine. So if, it, if this is working all right, you know, why does Congress need to do, have legislation in this space? Uh, does the ADA cover the Internet? The ADA, I believe, covers the Internet, but there is a dispute in the federal courts as to the extent of that coverage. And so to deal with that uncertainty, uh, I think it's important to have clarifying legislation. Also, although the ADA can be construed to uh, cover the internet, the regulations that the Department of Justice might issue, for example, probably would not apply to employers. Um, and that leaves a big, a big piece out. So those are two reasons why it's important to have separate clarifying legislation. Well, that, that's very helpful. Thank you for that. I would say that's a pretty great job. Clark, Swampa, are there any other talking points that you want to introduce on this imperative? I think like with what Clark mentioned about Zoom, like, yes, Zoom works for, for us, but it's like, it's kind of in the minority or like, it's not the only platform out there. And a lot of them don't have accessibility features in built in. A lot of people don't, businesses don't know about them. I just emphasize that like, yes, for me, got Zoom, me, got accessible platform, but they're not, it's not only, only out there. Yeah, that's a great point, Swatha. Just yeah. because one platform is accessible, um, it's not the exception that proves the rule, right? Not everything out there is accessible. And to Chris's point, you know, we want to make sure that the platforms and services used by employers, used by educators, used by healthcare providers, that all of them are accessible to, for people with disabilities so that we can have the the same level of access and independence as everyone else. You know, I pick up my, my phone all the time and every other day something is being updated. All websites and the, the levels on the internet are constantly being updated and upgraded and relaunched, et cetera. So how, how, can, how can it po- be possible to make it make it universally accessible when everything is constantly being upgraded up changed etc so this has to be built into the system so just as people that design websites and design uh, work on the internet 
uh, have certain protocols for uh, how you put things up in a website or a photograph or whatever. They need to design into that system a knowledge of the accessibility tools. These tools exist, but they're not taught and they're not yet incorporated. Uh, they're, they're not taught or, or mandated for the people that are, are learning uh, website design, for example, at uh, colleges and universities. So with this legislation, you will result in building in the knowledge of how to make websites and platforms and mobile applications accessible. It doesn't exist now, but the legislation will enable it to exist. The DEI and A, diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, that A cannot stand for afterthought. We need, like Chris said, accessibility to be included from the beginning in the design, development, and testing phases of technology, software, as well as hardware, so that when these upgrades are done, the websites and services remain accessible for people with disabilities. If you use technology such as your voiceover or your screen readers and and such, why isn't that enough? Well, not every website or every application is built to interact with the screen reader or voiceover. It has to be developed at first to be accessible with the secondary software or the auxiliary aids. So not every website is built that way. So. There, although there are some aspects of assistive technology with some smartphones that will include having a sighted person be able to use the camera on your phone to see your screen, it still remains difficult uh, if the application isn't accessible. It still remains difficult for the person to follow instructions and to use uh, the application if it's not built in to be accessible. So, Tom, welcome back to Sunday Edition. But uh, we asked you to come in to give us some talking points on our second imperative. Clark, do you want to give a refresher on what we were talking about a few minutes ago? Sure. And I'm going to turn it over to Tom here really quickly because ACB Diabetics in Action uh, actually hosted a community event back in November, encouraging folks uh, to uh, have a call to action to support the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act. Again, HR 4853. Tom, now a bipartisan piece of House legislation. Go ahead, Tom. Give us the most important, salient, you know, the, the, the points we really need to hit them with. In order to manage diabetes properly, you have to have the tools to do it. Those of us who are blind and visually impaired and living with diabetes do not have ready access to a lot of the tools that are out there. Um, so this bipartisan bill, thank you, Clark, is important because it's going to, from a legislative standpoint, compel pharma to integrate universal design into their products so that tier two and tier three products like insulin pumps, glucose meters, continuous glucose monitors, and other non-diabetes related products like blood pressure monitors and uh, ox oximeters will be made accessible. Anything that has, what, a visual aspect to it, right, Clark, should be made accessible. You know, for those that have diabetes without vision loss, the key is all about controlling your blood sugars and controlling the disease. And if you do that well, keep your blood sugars in a normal range, you're much less, less likely to have complications. However, for somebody like me that's experienced vision loss from my diabetes, it's even more critical because for someone that has had a complication, um, we must 
be able to get our blood sugars under better control or as tight as control as we can to prevent or in some cases delay further complications. Diabetes can affect your eyes, obviously, can affect your heart, can affect your kidneys, can affect your um, circulation. And all these things together are what you, you can keep a better eye on if you have a tighter control of your, of your blood sugars. It is an equal opportunity abuse of disease. And it affects everyone differently. The rub here is that we have to convince pharma to integrate universal design, but we really have to get these devices made accessible so that those of us that have experienced complications from the diabetes can prevent further complications or worse. It's not just diabetic. You know, we've got chemo that people are bringing home in packs and, and devices. We've got sleep machines. We've got heart monitors. How do we add to our diabetic conversation these other tools that, that would be covered by this? When we were first pursuing how it would go best about trying to get Medicare, Medicaid, other government entities involved in this process, um, their advice was make it broad. This bill in particular is, is, is good because you're right, Anthony, it covers a lot of other issues regarding other types of diseases where if you don't you know, have good vision that uh, you can't use a lot of these devices. So it's targeting a broad cross-section of other disabilities. It should have broad appeal, I would think, amongst our legislators just because it's not so specifically targeted and narrow. We need numbers, guys. We need people to get involved and raise their hands and say, you know what, this is important to me, whether I'm dealing with these particular issues or we have a lot of our members in ACB Diabetics in Action who are not diabetic themselves, but they either are a caretaker. Caregiver, for yeah. yeah, caregiver, yeah. or the more people we get advocating on behalf of this particular legislation, the better chance we have of getting it moved through the legislative process and hopefully at some point oh. being signed into law population that is aging into low vision who will also need, they don't need them now, but they're going to need them soon. And when it gets to the point, unfortunately, they don't admit that they're aging into vision loss. So they don't have systems in place. And then they find themselves in almost dangerous situations with some of this equipment, right? Oh, it's that you can harken back to the whole accessible prescription labeling initiative that ACB has been following for years. I mean, people with age-related eye disease like macular degeneration, glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy, I mean, and seniors who are most are typically taking several different medications, if they mix those up, it could be lethal. A lot of the baby boomer generation, of which I am one, you know, have had access to technologies and have access to all these different things to make their lives easier and uh, more enjoyable. Um, I have a best friend that just started losing his vision from macular de degeneration. And he's like, Tom, I, I get it. I get what you're dealing with now. I said, so, you know, I can no longer interact with my phone like I used to. I said, well, Think fortunately, your phone has voiceover on it now. But I think that this, the baby boomer constituency, is not going to stand for not having the tools that they need in this case to deal with whatever they're trying to do from a non visual standpoint, whether it's diabetes management, managing their prescriptions, whatever it might be. Um, and I think I'd like to make that compelling argument because I think it's a constituency that just is not going to stand for not having the things they need to live their lives as independently as possible. You know, earlier you showed me how great your phone technology is. Aren't there apps on your phone for all of this? Why do we actually need to make this a law? So let's just take an example, okay, Anthony? Let's talk about the continuous glucose monitoring space, whether you're using Dexcom um, or you're using Libre 
which is an Abbott Diabetes Care product. Both of those products come with a handheld reader as part of the, you know, your first prescription. Well, of course, the handheld readers are not accessible whatsoever. So if you can't see the screen, um, you can't use it. Um, so for the average person that's blind and visually impaired, uh, that's not going to work. But the thing we need to keep in mind with most, a lot of the people in our community through no fault of their own, don't have access to the smart devices that you need to use some of these uh, durable medical equipment, like continuous glucose monitors and other things. So from my standpoint as president of ACB Diabetes and actually we can't forget about those folks. We can't leave them behind. Pharma needs to come up with a solution or we need to help them come up with a solution that works for everybody. Um, I'm going to ask Tom to be the ACB representative. Clark, I'm going to ask you to push back a little bit. I'm doing great, sir. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my concerns and um, I hope we can uh, have a good time talking about this issue together. Yeah. So are you familiar with uh, with H.R. 4853, the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act? Yes, sir. I am very well aware of it. I happen to be a type 1 diabetic who lost his vision uh, from complications of the disease when I was a junior in college. So this issue is of utmost importance to me and my constituents because we have to find a way to get these devices that can help us best control our diabetes uh, made fully accessible so that I don't have any further complications and thus uh, prevent putting more of a burden on our economic and healthcare system by preventing these complications. So the issue, sir, goes well beyond just uh, diabetes. It goes into um, our whole healthcare system in this country. And as I think you know, and if you don't, I will tell you that uh, diabetes is epidemic levels in this country, Uh, whether you're type one or type two, type one is insulin dependent. Type 2 is typically managed by oral medication uh, on occasion with insulin, but um, we have to get our handle on helping these people manage the disease or the economic impact to our healthcare system is going to be devastating because complications with the disease such as vision loss, heart disease, all that stuff are really expensive. Well, I I hear you. Our healthcare system is a mess. And, um, (laughs) you know, do do you agree with the... uh, uh, the other party that the, the federal government should just nationalize all of health care and then everyone would have a, all the health care that they could need and more. I personally do not believe in that federalizing the health care system. And I would have to say that, sir, it's not a political issue. I don't care which party you're from. It's not a political issue to me. It's how do we, you know, best take care of the people in our in our society. I have a particular belief, sir, that um, if you give something away, people don't value or appreciate as much as if you um, make somebody, you know, pay for it. And I'm not saying, you know, pay exorbitant things, but I was taught as a very young kid that if you put your own money in the game, if you have your own skin in the game, you value something much more dearly. So while I'm not for a federally nationalized healthcare system, I would be for something where it's not just simply a government giveaway, but something where people uh, would have to have some kind of skin in the game in order to participate. So our private companies, our healthcare companies, they've got a lot of skin in the game and they're out there making making these great products um, so that folks like you can... Uh, can manage your health care. So what's uh, what's wrong with these these products that our great companies are bringing to market uh, right now? Well, th- this, I mean, I've been a type 1 diabetic since 1973. So you guys can do the math and find out how old I am. But so when I first was diagnosed, there weren't any devices. You took a shot of insulin and you hope for the best. And then really, what frankly, it wasn't until I was a sophomore in college that in-home blood glucose meters where you could check your blood sugars using a drop of blood really came onto the market. So as the whole 
you know, management of diabetes space, you know, pharma standpoint has evolved. I mean, they have come up with all these great products. So you, you've I, been a diabetic for quite, or you've had diabetes for quite a while and, you, and you're doing all right. Well, I, I would still like to see, I would still like to drive a car, but preventing complication from this disease is, is the bottom line because it is at some point, somewhere, somehow it's going to impact our economic healthcare system. It just is. So um, I'm at a greater risk right now, having experienced one complication and I'm knocking on wood because I haven't experienced any other complications, which is kind of atypical to be honest with you, sir. But the point is that if people who have experienced a complication uh, from this insidious disease can get it under better control, and they can prevent further complications and for, and then delay or prevent further uh, burdens to the healthcare system. It's as simple as that. Well, that's that's interesting. Thanks for sharing that. And you know, can you just have someone help you with this uh, with this equipment? Um, I could, but I don't think that is is fair. I think that I should be able to independently manage you know my my condition on my own. Um, because let's just say I want to test my blood sugar and my wife isn't around to do it. Well. Guess what happens, sir? I don't check my blood sugar, so I have no idea that my blood sugar is going high or it's going low. Having somebody help me do it just isn't the right answer because it wouldn't allow me to manage uh, my diabetes on my terms, on my timeline, on my schedule, um, on demand, if you will. When I need to do it, I need to do it, and I can't wait around for somebody else. So that that's not the right answer, sir, with all due respect. Uh, I hear you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, so get down to brass tacks here. What What is it that you need from, from our office here today? I need you to co-sponsor H.R. 4853, the uh, Medical Equipment Non-Visual Accessibility Act. Um, this is a piece of legislation that addresses uh, these inaccessible durable medical equipment, among other devices like blood pressure monitors and oximeters, you know, not, not non-diabetic related equipment. And, you know, I need you to encourage your peers in Congress and your other legislators to get behind this legislation because we really have an opportunity now to truly make an impact um, on the lives of people who are trying to live with diabetes and live well with it and manage it, including those of us that have experienced vision loss. All right. That's very helpful. And then I know my boss is going to ask me, so I'm going to ask you, is this a bipartisan bill? It is now. (laughs) All right. That was great. Our final imperative is one that's more than 10 years in the making, uh, but ACB worked very hard with the Coalition of Organizations for Accessible Technology, or COAT, um, and that led to the passing of the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act of 2010. Among other things, the CVAA placed into law the requirement for audio description from our broadcasters, as well as the top five cable network programmers, in addition to making requiring accessibility for advanced communication services, so two-way, real-time and near-real-time text and audio communications, uh, requirements for accessibility for wireless web browsers, so on smart devices, having access to accessible uh, web browsers, video user interface requirements for TVs, set-top boxes, Anywhere that you are viewing the video programming that's required to have audio description. However, these requirements, they were drafted with the latest and greatest technology that 2010 had to offer. And as we all know, uh, much like time, 
technology marches on. So although the CVAA was very forward looking in some aspects, like the accessible user interface requirements for video user interfaces and digital apparatuses and the requirements for advanced communication services covering all forms of text and audio communications. There's not a rulemaking that's been completed for, as the CVAA defines it, interoperable video communication services. Uh, there's also not requirements for audio description on streaming platforms or accessibility for streaming video platforms. Um, and at this point, I'll, I'll turn it to Kim and then Carl to see if there's anything else you'd like to comment about the limitations that we're running into of the, the current law and regulations. I know that um, anyone who is interested in a user of audio description on a broadcast television, and I'm going to stick with broadcast television for a reason, and the, the cable providers that are required to provide access to their content, and that's kind of another issue, enjoy it, want more of it. And right there is one of the key premises of the legislation. There's a lot in the 14-page draft legislation that I've looked at a couple times. And unlike Clark, who has a photographic memory for all these lines of legislation, it's a lot to absorb. But one of the major principles in the legislation relates to right now, we are at the ceiling for the number of hours of, of audio description on broadcast television and the cable providers required to provide audio description. And that's 87 and a half hours per quarter. So when you break that down, that's a quarter. So you break that down and maybe that adds up to three or four hours a week from all these providers. So that isn't really a lot of access, but we can't get any more because that's the ceiling that was built into the CVAA in 2010. So one of the things that we want to see is more access, broader access to the content that's available on broadcast television and the cable networks and stations that are out there. The other thing that it also addresses relates to other kinds of online access for um, television content, i.e. streaming or other sorts of services. Right now, those are not mandated in the CVAA. We have been extremely lucky and successful in advocating and using charm, using our velvet hammer, using um, litigation in some cases to get access for streaming services. And they have really stepped up to the plate and are adding more and more content because of our work and the fact that we have advocated so strongly on this issue. So we would really like to see a more um, substance in the legislation to make sure that streaming services also qualify for the requirements of the CVAA amendments that are going to be introduced very soon. Carl, do you oh. have things to add? Other things we want to look at is right now, audio description is only required to be passed in the top 70 or 80 market as of January, but there are over 250. We would like to see it be passed through to all markets. This also has to do with emergency notifications that become very vital during COVID to know what's going on. So is that accessible? To everybody. It also has to do with the deafblind uh, equipment program to provide communication equipment 
for the deafblind community. Without it, they would not be able to communicate with others. And it also has to do with communication for the deaf and hard of hearing in terms of relay services. Um, in terms of, I want to add to Kim's thing about audio description in terms of different platforms. I think that cable is changing the way people get it in that they have a uh, set-top box. Uh, soon they will all be offering apps. For instance, DirecTV now has a streaming app where you can get their services through an app rather than the satellite dish. And I think they're all going to be doing that soon. As of now, those are not required to pass through the audio description of the four broadcast networks and the four top cable network. I would also like to see in there one a top five cable network, which could potentially change every three years. Once they're required to do it, they're grandfathered clawed in so that there's no backsliding. So they have to keep oh. doing it. Uh, the audio description because the, the, the ratings do change and therefore their commitment can change. And just overall accessibility, the technology, I think that we haven't even considered now that moving forward. So make this future proof by putting in their language to cover all future technology. Also, the audio description files should always follow the title just like they do oh, in the deaf and hard of hearing yeah. community. The deaf and hard of community in the first DVAA did have the foresight to say that if it's ever been on broadcast, the file should follow it if it goes online. We don't have that same language. In the amendment, we do, but not in the current DVA. There's a lot of things. And the other thing I would suggest when we meet with our legislators and their, their staff is to remind them that this passed by unanimous consent back in 2000. Yeah, There was no controversy of this. This was unanimously voted on. And in today's environment, that's an amazing thing. And to remind them of that might be a good thing. The one thing COVID has shown is we're all relying on communication, entertainment, emergency notifications, uh, devices to be able to communicate, to get work done, to stay gainfully employed, to be entertained when we're sitting home watching a movie. This stuff has actually become more important. Not that it wasn't important, but it's become more part of our lives now. As many of us are working remotely and staying home remotely. Isn't this the same as closed captioning? Aren't they bound rules? And sometimes I've spoken with legislators before and they say, is this closed captioning for the blind? And I'll say, well, it's called audio description, but what it is and is, you know, and then I'll explain it. But a lot of people refer to it as that. And I don't, you know, I don't say, oh, no, no, that's wrong. I say a lot of people do call it that, but it's using words that are carefully selected and interspersed in the dialogue of the audio, as we all know, um, not to interfere with the content of the original program, but to help clarify for someone who can't see the screen. So think about your TV is working fine, but your picture went out and you're hearing everything on the screen, but there's things you don't understand. Something's happening. It's getting really exciting and someone's chasing someone and all these things. Well, audio description tells us what's going on, you know, and, and I give that kind of an explanation to help them understand because there are a lot of references that call it captioning for the blind. So rather than saying, no, that's wrong, I turn it around and say, well, some people do call it that. It's audio description. This is what it does. With technology consistently and constantly changing, you know, will they be able to keep up with what you're asking for? I would say yes, because they constantly change technology 
for other viewers not that constantly upgrading the video quality, constantly upgrading the sound quality, constantly upgrading the viewing experience, the technology uses, the device we use. So why can't they do the same thing with accessibility? The one thing that the first CVAA did very well, it was not overly prescriptive. It did not tell broadcasters or cable companies or communications providers how they had to do something. They just told them it had to be done. You Mm. have to have an accessible user interface. How you choose to do it is up to you. You must have audio description. It's Kim said, 87 and a half hours per quarter, less than one hour per day. What program you decide to audio describe, that's up to you. Now we're going to to have more parity with the deaf and hard of hearing community. It's not enough anymore to have less than an hour a day of audio description. If there's video content, wherever it is, viewers expect it to be audio described. We want the right to watch bad TV like everybody else. What about live events, news and sports and things like what we're going to all experience in a couple of hours, that big old Super Bowl? I'm for it. I am too, but but I think the legislation draft right now says that they're exempt from live or near live um, events. Now, we've seen over the last couple of years, broadcast television has really stepped up to the plate. We've got the Olympics right now being audio described on NBC. They're doing a fabulous job with the coverage we're getting in prime time. We had the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and I think a 4th of July fireworks celebration, the inauguration in um, in 2021. And those are just some examples of networks being innovative and stepping out to just not sit there and say, well, we're not required to do it for live events because our community wants a live event and they want to watch it just as much as everybody else does. Well, and I think with the advent of technology, one of the other things we got to make sure we do in the new amendment is to make sure that we don't compete, say, with the Spanish-speaking community. Because the Super Bowl, for instance, when you turn that on and turn that on the SAP channel today, it'll be in Spanish. So we want to make sure moving forward, new technology has multiple streams so that the Spanish can also have their live event, so that we have our live event. And with these internet solutions, I don't see why you can't have five, six different live streams to choose from within the same program. So That's the other way to make it future-proof and make it easier for them. Right now, NBC, Mm -hmm. even if they wanted to describe the Super Bowl, the Spanish-speaking community has been listening to the Super Bowl live for several years. Do you take that away from them? No, not necessarily, right? Moving forward, we want to make sure that ASTC 3.0 has multiple language tracks and cable boxes and internet solutions. And so I am all for live events too, but we also have to make sure that technology will support it. I'll just also add, I mentioned the advanced communication services currently covering text and audio communications. The FCC has an unfinished, well, they haven't even started. uh, They have an (laughs) undefined term of interoperable video communication service. No one really knows what that is. And part of the problem is that word interoperable. Um, So the the draft bill also redefines that to just video communication services. And 
by giving the FCC the authority to set accessibility requirements for video communications services. This is what will really help us move the ball forward on uh, the accessibility of telehealth or conferencing mm-hmm. platforms, distance learning platforms. You know, we need the websites to be accessible and the apps to be accessible as well. But as Chris Bell was saying, we want we need the content on those websites. Uh, we need the video players and portals on those websites to have yeah. accessibility built in as well. Kim, being our immediate past president, I think would be a great choice to be an L.A., and Carl, why don't you introduce this imperative? And um, Kim, give them a little pushback. Ask them some hard questions. Mr. Richardson, very glad to see you today, but um, my time is limited. So, you know, what can we do for you today? So, yes. Hi, my name is Carl Richardson. I'm with the Bay State Council of the Blind and the American Council of the Blind. We're here today to um, discuss the legislative imperative that are important to the blind and disability community. I'm here to discuss uh, amending the 21st Century Video Accessibility Act, which was passed by unanimous consent by 2010. And it has to do with advanced communication services, uh, the accessibility of television, the accessibility of web browsing, uh, cell phones, and that sort of thing. It improved the quality of audio description so the eye of the blind person can watch television, access to display devices so that I can independently use them, such as TV and DVD players, and uh, access to my cell phone so that I can take advantage of all the services that are out there. And also, very important to me as a deafblind person, the deafblind distribution equipment program, which uh, gives out tech communication devices so that deafblind individuals may communicate with friends, families, loved ones, employers, society at large. So that's a lot of stuff. You talk about accessibility to television. Isn't television, you just turn it on? I mean, what kind of accessibility do you need for television? There's two things. As you know, most of the TVs have menus and screens now, and I have to know how to navigate through the screen. So there's a screen reader built in so that the blind can navigate from channel to channel, uh, navigate between the different things that are on the TV set, like changing your display setting or uh, access and other... So your TV the, talks to you? It can talk to you. Oh. That's what this legislation... Does everybody's TV talk to them? As of 2016, all devices are supposed to have some sort of accessibility features built in for the blind and visually impaired. Yes. No, I said that's amazing. That's yep. very, very interesting. I I also access much of my television programming through the use of audio description. It's basically the description of key visual elements, time, place, costume, settings, actions that are taking place on the screen being read by a narrator during gaps in dialogue so that it helps in the storytelling for those who are blind and visually impaired. So, So that doesn't sound like captioning. Captioning's for deaf people, right? No, captioning is a verbatim transcript of what is being said, as well as talking about background noises and things so that they can follow. This is uh, very different. I don't hear that on my TV. Well, there's a feature within the four broadcast networks and the five top cable networks are currently required to do 87 and a half hours per quarter, which is about seven hours a week. 
of audio description, and you get that by turning on what it's called the SAP feature, secondary audio program feature within your television set. And you turn that on. And once you turn that on, it activates that feature. Oh, okay. So everybody doesn't hear it. Cool. Seven hours a week. That's like an hour, an hour a day. That's not yes, very much that's... accessible television for people who are blind. That makes sense that you'd want to have a, an amendment to this law. I wonder why they didn't do it right the first time. It was a new technology for many, and, and it took some, we were going from zero to seven hours a week. And, and, and But now, what this has shown over the last 10 years, it, there's been an increased demand and an increased appetite. And just the fact mm-hmm. that many other streaming services are starting to do this on their own shows that there's a, there's a need for it everywhere. So what about those cable companies? You mentioned five of them. There's a lot more than five cable companies. How does that impact them? Well, we'd like to expand the number of channels that are required to play audio description because, you know, most people have hundreds of cable channels to watch where, you know, I I basically will not watch something unless it has audio description. And the other thing is the we're only required to do the top, top cable rated network every three years. So a channel can fall out of it. And we'd like to make sure that once they're required to do it, they're permanently required to provide that audio description. It's not a financial hardship, and it can be done. It's been done for years now, and um, it should be just like captioning. It started in 1973, and it took them almost 30 years before they had 100% captioning. Uh, we have now been around for just over uh, 20 years, and we, we want to now increase toward 100% audio description. That's certainly understandable. Is, is industry part of this equation? We get a lot of people in the office about it from industry, you know, so we have to think about that. Some industry is all for it and does a lot of good work. Some see it as an, well, some see it as an add-on, but I would look toward the streaming services and some of the stations, uh, some of the network that have embraced uh, audio description because they know that it, it expands their audience. Have the streaming services done it voluntarily? It doesn't seem to be part of the... The law, as I as I am familiar with it, at this well, point. somebody on demand streaming services have done it voluntarily. Yes, mm-hmm. such as Netflix and Prime Video. We also want to make sure that the channels are passed through to the live streaming services because many people are starting to get rid of their cable top boxes and you stream an alternative such as Sling TV, YouTube TV Live, and they're not required to even pass through the audio description that's already created. Yeah, okay. a lot of people use those cord cutting things. I, I, I get that. That's important. Well, Mr. Richardson, I want to thank you for coming to meet with me today. And um, I'd like to be able to follow up with you and the American Council of the Blind. So um, thank you for sending me your business card. And we will um, keep in touch. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. I don't have a single critique of that. I have to say it was the perfect mix of giving the facts, but it was it was a great mix of the facts as they're slated and personal anecdotes that really drove it home. To mention the bill numbers is a, is a great point. So for the legislation that has bill numbers, that's very helpful for the offices. Um, for the, the website accessibility in the CVAA amendments bill, those, we don't have bill numbers. Bills aren't introduced yet. So the ask there is um, really just for them to support uh, legislation once it's introduced. Be yourselves, share your personal stories. It could be the first time for many of these staffers that they are speaking with 
constituents with disabilities or people who are blind. Um, so just sharing your personal experience and why these issues are personally important to you, your friends, your family, your, your ACB community will really help drive home the, the need to those staffers or to your elected members. To listen to the original full-length versions of the podcasts from which this digest was taken, please go to www.acbmedia.org podcasts and look for the Sunday edition, the Tuesday topics, and the Visibilities podcasts.